Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, well, it's a privilege to be here. I'm out of my comfort zone. I was teasing with a couple here that I feel like Solomon now. (laughs) But I know you're not the harem, but anyways. And, and I, whether I'm sassy or not, I don't know about that, but I do have more filters than Shannon does, as you probably know from listening to her. Anyways, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I'm from Canada. We come here, we get to Snowbird, and uh, uh, we met uh, Shannon through Life Church Plant, and it's been a, a great friendship for Terry and I. She's come up to Canada a couple times to visit us, and uh, I'm not sure why we let her come back the second time. All right. Some years back, I was, we were at our home church. I was a professor of New Testament studies up at a college in Canada. And in our home church, uh, we were singing the usual worship stuff. I mean, you guys know what this is all about. So it was very happy. It was upbeat kind of stuff. And uh, partway through the service, partway through the worship time, we were told, you probably do this at your churches, where partway through the singing, you're told to turn around and shake hands with your neighbor, greet them, however. And so those of us who are introverts, we, we can't wait to get over that. But we do it. And so we always would sit in the same area of the church and our pew neighbors around us, we got to know them, of course, a little bit as you shake hands and visit with them uh, there and in the lobby. Well, after some really exuberant singing, the happy kind of stuff, uh, you know, if you want joy, you must sing for it. Or this is where the party is. Anybody sing that one? Uh, thank goodness the shelf life of some courses is only about six weeks. And uh, anyways, so I was one of those types, sing like you really mean. It comes from the worship leader, right? Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, by the way, at Life Church, we're raising money to buy an electronic sign for behind the platform so that, and it's going to flash, make some noise for Jesus when the song service is a little dull or... or yeah. Well, that's, that's, where, that's where the emergent church is going, folks. That's what we're going to do. Okay. Anyways, so as I was saying, we were turning around, we were shaking hands with with the neighbors, and uh, there was one of the fellows behind us, and shaking hands with him, and I noticed he was a little bit subdued. It was kind of contrary to the mood of the service. And so I asked him, I says, how are you doing? And he says, I lost my father last night. And it really started to get me thinking, and it's something that has haunted me, and I think about it often in our worship services is what can miserable Christians sing? Not miserable, miserable, but you know what I mean. Going through misery, hard times. What is there for them to sing? How do they feel when it's the happy songs, right? Uh, And so uh, the air went out of the party balloons in that service, at least for me. And uh, I've learned a lot from that altercation. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe it's absolutely necessary that we sing the the rejoicing songs, the Psalm 100 songs, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph, make a joyful noise. I mean, after all, we've got a lot to celebrate with the story of redemption. Christ has done a lot for us, so we can celebrate there. But there's also, I believe, an importance that we have a diet of the other types of psalms. And in fact, uh, depending on who you read, there's up to 60% of the book of Psalms is lament. So for example, how often do we sing from Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long will you be silent, right? How long must I uh, wrestle in my, with my thoughts as I'm going through difficult times? In fact, I've, I've loved some of the courses that have come out lately. For example, um, All My Life You Have Been Faithful. I can't remember the name of that one. But there are some songs that do express that ability for us to, to reflect, even though we're going through tough times, that God has still been faithful for us. So we do well to include those kinds of songs as well. Now, I'm sure you've uh, encountered some of this. Has anybody ever come up to you when you've gone through some tough times? And what do they say to you? Don't worry. Be happy. You ever had that happen to you? And hopefully you've had some filters and not responded the way some of us might want to. Or perhaps somebody might minister with really great sensitivity with the following words. Um, Maybe you know the chorus. So let the sun shine in. Face it how? With a grin. Smilers never... Is this a Canadian song? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Smilers never, I saw it on the Flintstones back when I was a kid. Yeah. Smilers 
never lose and frowners never win, so let the sun shine in. And while there's some good truth to that, but it still doesn't really comfort a heart that's really going through a difficult times. Uh, so anyways, we've got all kinds of stuff going on in our churches, the messy stuff, the hardship stuff, and we all need to know how to relate to one another in this. Now, this little brief intro, and I think that was only about 90 seconds. Yeah, it all relates to the, an episode in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I, are you going to be on that one? I don't know if you're at the same. Okay. And I'm going to segue to that story shortly, but I want to give you uh, two Proverbs. And the first one is this, and it's found in 1410. So if you do have Bibles, you can zip to it or turn the pages. 1410 of Proverbs. And it says this. It's from the New International Version. It says, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Think about that. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Now, in part, this proverb is a bit of a rebuke, but it's also got a bit of encouragement depending what side of the, the proverb you're coming from. So, for example, it's a rebuke to those who want to come alongside you in your hardship and say, you know what, sister? It's safe to say that, right? Yeah. I know what you're going through. And do you ever want to say, do you really know what I'm going through? How can you possibly know what I'm going through? A number of years ago, we, uh, some very good friends of ours, they were a younger couple. He was the youth pastor at our church, uh, David and Diana. David uh, had a battle with cancer over a period of years. He had some remission, but eventually liver cancer got him, and he passed away. He was about age 40. Diana was, she's a very determined girl, and so she was determined she was going to grieve properly. So she got herself, oh, I don't know, three or four books, right, Terry? And she was studying these books and making sure she was going through the right kind of stuff. And she would tell us a couple of re things that just absolutely grated her soul. And one of them was when somebody would come up, a well-meaning, maybe older widow, would come up and say, I know what you're going through. I lost my husband 15 years ago. And Diana just wanted to shout, how can you possibly know what I'm going through? I'm in my 30s. I have three young daughters. How could you possibly know? Each heart knows its own bitterness. And no one else can share its joy. So that's kind of the rebuke side. Let's be very careful about you know, how we insist that we know what other people are going through. But it shouldn't stop us from, from trying to console or to be with other people to help them. Now, it's also an encouragement in this that you don't have to feel guilty in the least if you, are, if you are grieving deeply and others are telling you, just get over it. You don't have to listen to them. You don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to think there's something wrong with you. Why, you know, a day after you've gotten some bad news, why you're not uh, singing, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Each heart knows its own bitterness. Now, others can be delighted with your joys, right? No one else can share its joy. Well, others can appreciate it. So, uh, when you have a brand new baby, family members, neighbors, whatever, they might be very happy for you. So they share somewhat in your joy. Or you got a job promotion or whatever it is, other people might share in joy. Unless, of course, they have something pathological called schadenfreude and they, they don't like it when you succeed, right? Uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde. He says, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. Well, that's not very healthy, is it? So... But the problem is, is that sometimes one person's win is another person's loss. And they feel it and they can't share the joy with you. Now the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, he tells us to do what? He says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So he tells us to identify with people on both sides of the spectrum. But, you know, based on this proverb, I think even Paul would admit you can't fully enter into those uh, rejoicing and weeping times. Now, how does all this relate to 2 Samuel 6? And it's going to be verses 16 to 23 of, of that chapter. But I'm, before I answer that, I'm going to give you one more proverb, and that's found in chapter 25, verse 20. And I love the imagery. There's, something, there's a little bit of humor in this one. Chapter 25, verse 20. And it says, Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, and of course with this heater, it's rather hot right here. <laughs> I thought it was the floodlights from the TV cameras. All right. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like pouring vinegar on soda. Do you ever do that in your science experiments? You know what happens. Is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. That's a powerful proverb, isn't it? Now, both vinegar and soda are good things. They're helpful, useful things. 
But when you put the two of them together, what happens? Think of this. You've got a grieving heart. You've got a rejoicing heart. And when you try to force the rejoicing heart on a grieving heart, what do you get? It's not good. It's an explosion. In other words, both are good, but let's not mix the two together. Not, let's not insist that when we're riding high in God's favor, that we try to pick somebody up by just you know, saying, smile, God loves you. So both are valuable, but they clash. Now, as you study, and as Shannon will explain uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have two extremes going on in this passage. You have somebody who's celebrating with great joy, King David, as he brings the ark in, and you know the scene there. The ark of God is entering Jerusalem, and what's David doing? He's, he's dancing, he's walking and leaping and praising God, isn't he? The party is on. And it's something that is worth celebrating, certainly, as the ark is finally coming to its, its, its home, Jerusalem. Now, so there's reason for that. And per perhaps to some, that act is mm, a little bit undignified. Kings shouldn't be walking and leaping. They should be like the British monarchy. They should be staid and proper. Anybody got some Commonwealth blood in them? But as David is walking and leaping, there's somebody who's in the other extreme, and she's watching with narrowed eyes and a scowl on her face as she sees her husband, David, dancing in the streets. And the Bible says that, that she despised him in her heart. Something reeked about what she was watching with David. And I can't help but think that she felt he was being absolutely hypocritical. He was a hypocrite. Now, how do we get that? Well, I want you to flip this around. I'll get to that perhaps in a second. Each heart knows its own bitterness. Whose heart was bitter? Michal, right? She was very bitter. The uh, question is, why was she so bitter? How does she go from being in love with David? And here's something interesting. It says earlier in the, in the narrative that she loved David, right? The interesting thing is, it's the only time in Scripture that a woman is said to love a man. Now, you may say something in the Song of Solomon. Perhaps you can argue that. That's okay. But other than that, this is the only time. That's rather significant. But the interesting thing is it doesn't say that David loved her. It says that David was pleased to be Saul's son-in-law. So if you read very carefully, you see right off the bat that there's something that's not going to be good about this. Is David really in love or is he marrying this woman because it's a, it's a, a pathway to secure the throne? So she had much to grieve over. It says that she was daughter of Saul. She had no children to the day of her death. David did not enter into her grief. He Perhaps he didn't console her. Maybe he had nothing to do with her. But she lost her father. She lost her brother, Jonathan. She lost, if you will, the kingdom. She was a royal princess. We're not sure how proper she would have been. But nevertheless, that's the blood that she came from. And you know what it's like in Scripture. For a woman not to have children, it was seen as a curse or judgment from God. Not a good thing. So, how did this all come about? Her father's been dead. He's been forgotten, if you will. There is what's David doing in all this time. God's number one draft pick, David. He's the golden boy, God's golden boy. And he's out there having a blast. And through all the intrigue and conflict previously with Saul, Saul, as an act of vengeance, took Michal away from David. He had promised her to David. They married. Uh, she loved him. But then David never makes contact with her. He, she finds out that he's marrying other women. Not that that's a big deal in the Old Testament, right? But anyways, makes no contact. Saul takes her away, gives her to another man, and it appears that she has a romantic relationship. She's happy again. But then David, when he's uh, assigned his kingship, and Saul is dead, David orders that she be ripped away from this husband and brought back to his harem. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the harem, but the, often the facility in which they stayed, it would be nothing more than a glorified chicken coop. Each of the women would have their own little room, and it would be up to the king's beckoning whether they would ever really uh, experience any of the royalty. So not very good, and you can imagine you get several women together living in those quarters. It's just uncomfortable, and whichever one gets the preference, they're looking down their nose at the other one. Anyways, it's just not good. So there's that. She's barren. She has no children, and she is going through a difficult time. Now, sadly, David doesn't care to enter her grieving. He doesn't care. He had other wives. Everything is awesome. 
He brought Michal back more as an act of vengeance and to secure his, his throne than anything else. And so I want to say this. David is not full-on squeaky clean as a hero in the scriptures. You know that. Yeah, he is a hero, but he's absolutely flawed as a hero. Yet God used him mightily. And lest one, someone would think that I'm promoting, you know, go ahead, live in your flaws. Uh, I'm okay, you're okay, no need to change. Well, you've got me wrong there, dead wrong. I'm saying that God was uses flawed human beings all the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be standing before you, would we? So if you assume your flaws are okay because God can still use you, you're dead wrong. Now, here's the, the final comment I want to make. Here's the deal. Are we who are in a good place in life too busy praising God, enjoying his blessings, that we can't enter into the hearts of those who weep? Are we so delighted with our station in life, with how things are going so well, that we insist others must be like us if they would turn their frown upside down? Was David insisting that Michal come and celebrate, or was he bitter that she couldn't? Did he really care that she grieved? I don't think he cared a whit. And so let us be reminded continually, not only to rejoice with those who rejoice, but let's also, at every opportunity, let's learn to weep with those who weep. We may not enter fully into their grief, but that should not stop us from doing that. And I often wonder, what might have happened if David truly cared about Michal? All right, I'm done. Thank you for your patience and the overtime. You can dock my pay. And I'm going to just kind of read up to where I was. Um, I'm going to highlight some of the stuff I ended with um, that I covered, you know, uh, better last week. And then I'm just going to move on forward. And we're going to end basically with the wisdom that Brian gave us at the end of the chapter. Okay. Chapter 6 says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. We talked about that. We talked about where the ark had been, how long it had been there. Um, and now David has determined that he's going to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem to be the center of attention. Actually, per se, inviting the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord back into the central life of the Israelite people. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, the son, and Uzzah and Ahio, see he says everything right, I say everything like an Arkansas person. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So it was quite the party. Last time we talked, uh, what was the problem? Now that we, we were together last week, what sticks out from those verses? What was the problem of how they were transporting the ark? They were transporting it on a new cart, right? And I read to you last week, Numbers 4.15, where God had established the regulations exactly how to transport, care for the Ark of the Covenant. It said, and when Aaron and his sons, it's Numbers 4.15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are carrying. So the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, right? And we talked about where did they even get the idea to put this thing on a new cart? And I reminded you last week of the stories of, do you remember when the Philistines stole the Ark and they took it to all five of their cities and then they had the whole, you know, breakout with the tumors of the groin and they had the whole issue with the mice and uh, they said, we got to get this thing out of here. And they designed a scheme of how the ark would be brought back to God's people. And part of that was that it would be transported on a new cart. We also talked about how sad it was that when it was transported, it was taken to Bet Shemesh, which was part of the land um, 
that would have been given to the family of Kohath, if you research it. So they should have known how to handle it, but they didn't handle it correctly either. And because of that, many died. And at that point, they're like, get this thing out of here. And they send it to Kiriath Jerem, where it stayed for about 20 years. And so we have this whole idea that here they are mimicking the pagans of how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about too, like how in the world can you forget that? How is it designed? I mean, literally the look of it told you that it was designed to be what? Carried. I mean, the poles were inside the rings and right there, if you look at it, it should have prompted the fact that it is to be carried. We also talked about, I described to you last week what the ark was. Do you remember that? I described it in detail, what was inside, how it was designed, that literally the presence of God dwelt among over it, focusing on this covenant relationship that he had formed with his nation. And we talked about the fact that literally it was to be carried because that covenant, if I look at it, is pretty much a picture of burden. It is something to be carried, that we are carrying it around. And actually it was the Levites, the priests, that represented the mediator between God and man, that they would bear that on their shoulders. And uh, Jesus would come in and do what? I mean, in my mind, I picture him carrying it away because he was the blood he was the mercy seat, and he was the blood on the mercy seat. So you have this whole deal of where they did not carry it correctly. In 1 Chronicles 15, 11 through 13, uh, Chronicles is like the commentary on the Samuels, all right? Like reading the newspaper, getting more detail of what's happening. And it literally says, we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So eventually, I mean, they knew that the responsibility fell on them, how they treated the ark. Um, last week we talked about surely David prayed for God's blessing on the big production, but it does, doesn't seem like he inquired about the details of the production, that he wanted God's blessing, but not necessarily God's opinion, that what he was doing was good motive, good heart, but he went about it what? The wrong way. Their feelings or emotions were not indicators of God's pleasure. David has a good heart and good intentions, but what he did was wrong. Be careful confusing what pleases us with what pleases God. We talked about all of this last week. So now look at verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of, is it Nacon, Nason, what? Great. Oh, you're taking notes with me? Wow. Nacon. Yuza put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. It was interesting, as we were talking this week, uh, Brian was telling me that nakon literally means to strike or to blow, but that it can also mean something prepared or fate. I think that is so interesting. Because it makes you wonder, why in the world, so fate, interesting, why in the world did the oxen stumble on the threshing floor? We've talked about what the threshing floor was, right? It's a high place where the wind would come by. They would take the sheaves and they'd lay them down, trampled by oxen or cattle, breaking it up. And then they would take the winnowing fork and they would throw it up into the air and the chaff, which is light, would blow away and the heavy seed would fall. So in that context, you're looking at the threshing floor is the place to separate things. I think it is really interesting that it is there that the, the ox stumbled because I think we're about to separate some things. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, a, a great separation would be, I am God and you are not. I am holy and you are not. And so we're about to see these things. I thought it was interesting that Yuza, his name means strength. Ahio means friendly. And the new cart, that would have been a pretty strong, efficient way to transport the ark. I mean, that sounds like a good deal right there. You've got strength and friendly, right? Leading the way. 
You have this amazing, efficient new cart, but what was the problem? Obedience. God had laid out for them the instructions of how to lead, and this has been their problem, right? The point is God leads, and they've got this backwards. Because if you think back, remember, uh, they were treating God like the pagans treated their God, like God was living in that box. We've talked about it before. They went out to battle, and all of a sudden, they realized they were losing. And what? Oh, darn, hold on. Let's go get God. We forgot him. He's in the box. And so they would take the box into war, just like the pagans would put their gods in their pockets and take them into war. But that's not how God planned. Think about it. When God entered into, when they entered into Israel under Joshua, what did it look like? He said, this is how we're going to enter in. You take the Ark of the Covenant with the priests, the horns, you step into the Jordan River. They are to lead the way. And when you do that, it will dry up. And then they processed on and did a whole, what I call a king's procession with the Ark of the Covenant in front. And they walked around the wall. The Lord was leading the procession. Somehow we've gotten the cart before the horse, if you know what I mean. And this is the problem because they are always wanting to run the show. They are always in control. God leads. He does not follow. I think it's interesting. Uh, uh, do you know what a litter is? That it, like when it was a raised seat for the king to sit on. All right. So a litter is for royalty. A cart, it's for things. So I want you to think about that. He was designed, it was designed, that's where the presence of the Lord uh, appeared. And he was the king. He is not a thing to be taken around and pulled around on a cart. No matter how innocently it was done, it was a direct violation to God's command and it resulted in death. Now, I'm with you. This story drives me crazy. When I read it, I hate it. It hurts my heart. I feel bad for Yuza. I'm with David on the whole anger thing, but I want to make something clear. God is not impulsive. All right? God is not like the pagan gods that they were always trying to figure out what mood he or she was in. Like they had no idea what they would do next. And, and this fear of if they would strike out or what they would do. God is not impulsive. He literally had made his instructions known. Have you ever had this experience of a, as a parent, and maybe your kids are just better than mine, but where you literally have laid it out. And you didn't just lay it out once. Like you've laid it out. If you do this, the following things. This is what you're going to receive. Did you hear me? Are you looking at me in the eye? If you do this, this is what's coming. And I promise you, those fools will do it. And then when you bring down the hammer, what will they do? <gasps> what's wrong with you? God, Mom, that was a little extreme. I told you from the beginning, if you do this, this is the consequence. And I'm going to tell you what, my word doesn't hold a candle compared to God's. He said it. He said, if you touch the holy things, you will die. This is something they needed to understand. They needed to understand. They needed to have a sense of the holiness of God. I think they needed to have a sense of the fear of drawing near to him without appropriate preparation. I think they need to understand that he is God and they are not. And listen, the ark represented a covenant relationship. It was to be handled in a holy way. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I truly do believe, although it's hard for me to understand with my peon mind, I truly believe if you downgrade the holiness of God, you will downgrade his grace. Because the shock is, that a holy God, who sometimes we view as so holy, he cannot look upon us, or so holy, uh, you know, he is filled with wrath, and he is distance. But the fact is, that holy God, when we see him in flesh, who is 100% God, and he represents God completely, 
What was he like? He put on flesh and he put on flesh so that he could what? Touch us. He did it all the time. Why? Because we can't come to God. We couldn't come to God who can see the face of a holy God and live. So guess what? God came to us in the flesh. And I think if you downgrade his holiness, you're going to downgrade the beauty of his grace. And somehow in my mind, I have to be able to live too, that when you downgrade his wrath per se, you might also downgrade his love. And I'm still living in that, trying to figure that one out. It's hard. Let's talk about God's anger. It says that God's anger was kindled, okay? I view this anger a little bit different, okay? So if you were them in that day, and you do not know what you know today, you do not know the New Testament, you do not know Jesus, you do not know any of what we know, if you would have seen what happened right there, that Yuza touched the ark and he was struck dead, how would you describe it? That God's anger was kindled against Yuza, right? And the interesting thing is, if you read commentaries, some of these commentaries drive me bananas because I truly believe we try to make things deeper than they really are. We tried to make things uh, what I call Christianese. We tried to fit the gospel so tightly into things that are really uh, symbols, types. We go too far because I even read a commentary that talked about how blessed we were that God gives us time to repent. What? What does that mean? He didn't care enough about Yuza. He, he cares more about us today. God changed over time. I don't believe that has anything to do with that at all. I think the fact is this. God set a law. His word said something. And it said, if you touch the ark, you will what? Die. So let me ask you, if you touch fire, you're going to get burned. If you uh, fly into the sun, what is going to happen? We're not made to do that. We do not have the elements. We are not made to do that. So the fact is, if we experience that kind of power and force and heat, what? We will die. If you jump off a bridge, what will happen? Gravity says if you jump, you will what? You will fall. So let me ask you, is gravity angry? I don't know. That's just how I think about it. I don't think we need to read into everything. I think when they perceived the event in their mind, it was a judgment and it was the wrath of God, just like God made so-and-so barren. God did this. They gave him all of these um, motives. And I think, yes, there was judgment because God said, if you touch the holy things, you will what? You will die. And so that is what happened. Um, and remember, he's an equal opportunity. The Philistines didn't handle it correctly, and they broke out with tumors of the groin. We talked all about that. Wasn't that a fun day when I described all that? I mean, at Bet Shemesh, they should have known, and they didn't handle it correctly. They died. Except when we read this, it seems so extreme. Um, the ark stayed for a long period of time at Abinadab's house. I find that really interesting. It was there for about 20 years. His sons had grown up with the presence of the ark. I just wonder sometimes if familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know. I just, I, I sat in that for a little while. Something we've always known growing up. Do we ever become so familiar with it that we forget its awesomeness, its holiness, uh, and I think that's a great thing to sit and look upon. Did Yuza presume God needed him? Was it up to him to protect the integrity of God? The word presume literally means conjecture, speculate, postulate, deduce, conclude. What's the problem? That wasn't his place. To be honest, he should have never been in that position. He should have never been in the position to conclude, to induce, to any of that because it should have never been on the cart. But the fact is, it's not our job to presume. It's our job to obey. And God had laid out exactly how they were to treat the holy things. 
So it goes on to say, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I bet he was angry. I mean, we're having a party. It's a parade. I mean, singing and dancing, this is a happy event. He's so excited about it. His intentions are so good. I think his heart is good. He has now made a capital. He has brought the nation together. And the next thing is he is going to bring Jehovah worship. He's bringing God back into the center of things because Saul dropped the ball. He's been lost for a while. And so he's bringing it back. This is good. Music is going off. And then all of a sudden, you want to talk about stopping a party? Have someone drop dead in the middle of it, right? And he, he's angry. But anger is a secondary emotion to me. So really what is going on, I thought he's probably saying, what in the world? Why in the world would God do this? I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to bring you back. <laughs> I am trying so hard to make you the center of my life. I'm really trying to do this, God. Yep. Then, David, you need to remember what that means. I am God and I am holy. But have y'all ever been there? Have you ever just not understood what the heck is going on? I'm trying. I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to obey. And I'm, I'm truly not understanding, God, what's happening. I don't understand this at all. And frankly, uh, do you ever just get mad? Yeah. Well, I don't just get frustrated. I get mad. I have been mad at God. I'm going to tell you right now, just flat out mad. Because you think you know, and then something goes against what you think you know, and then you feel you know nothing, and then you get mad, and you're just mad about it. And then it goes on to say, and he was afraid. Well, I would be too. I mean, do you remember Beth Shemesh? When, when they died for treating the ark bad, what, what did they feel? They were afraid. And what did they want? This thing needs to go somewhere else. And so David is feeling the same way because he does not understand he has great intentions to bring the ark back. He's trying to reestablish. He's excited. I'm trying hard to please you, God, but he is absolutely confused. He does not understand. And by the way, this afraid is afraid. It's not to revere. Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's afraid. Have you ever wondered, too, what he thought everybody was thinking as a leader? He has orchestrated this whole thing, invited 30,000 of the most uh, powerful people, and they have started this whole party. And in the middle of it, it went real bad. Okay, that could be a reflection of who and his leadership. David, he's like, wow, this didn't work out too good. And what are they thinking about my understanding or my relationship with God? I don't know. I just wonder how much he questioned. But the fact is, it says, So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed three months, and the Lord blessed Obed and all his household. I don't know about you, but when I don't understand what God is doing, or when I get to a place where I don't get it and I am frustrated, I'll be honest with you. I set it down. What do you do? I walk away for a while. Have you ever just been frustrated and just kind of walked away? I, I got to laugh and I was like, they kind of went to opposite corners. Okay, go to opposite corners. This has been a bad day. Everybody needs a timeout, right? Did David need a timeout? Did God need a timeout? I don't know. But for three months, he's like, I don't get it. I don't understand what just happened here. And over time, what starts to happen? When you're afraid, when you're angry, when all the emotion is going on, and you finally step back, what begins to happen? Well, look. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed to the city of David rejoicing. 
So what happened in those three months? Well, he began to what? Calm it down. He began to seek. He began to think about it. He began, and what drew him back? He finds out that the ark really is bringing what? Blessing. That's what, the, that's what it was always meant to bring. Always. The ark of God was given to man as a blessing. It was the presence of God living amongst his people. It's all about covenant relationship. It was meant to be a blessing. It was always a blessing. The fact is that in their, uh, in their disobedience, in their misunderstanding, they treated it in a disrespectful way. But he, I'm going to tell you, this just reminds me so much when I think about because he was afraid, he ran from it. I say so many times, I think I got saved out of fear, to be quite honest. I grew up with hellfire and brimstone. And I'm going to tell you, I ran down the aisle because I didn't want to go to hell. When I heard that, being a sinner, I got that. Like, I was like, yep, that's me. You just described me. That's me. I didn't have any problem recognizing that. And when I heard what my destination would be and what I needed to do, and I, I, I ran down that aisle. But I will tell you that fear may have gotten me down the aisle, but it won't keep me in a relationship. Love does. And it's been a lifetime of trying to understand that. And right now, in that bad situation, I think he's sitting back for those three months and he's contemplating and he's evaluating what actually went on and who is responsible for it and how it went wrong. And he's seeing his part and he's seeing what happened and he's beginning to see the truth and he realizes what? Hashtag my bad. Because the ark is blessing. The ark is his presence. It's his covenant. And so this time he goes and gets it. Well, how does he do that? Well, now it's carried, right? So somewhere along the way, they figured that out. And the correct people carried that ark. And he is like, okay, I, I want you back. I want to bring you into Jerusalem. It was still an amazing production. I wish I could have seen it. There was a reason to rejoice. It says this, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Do any of your Bibles say it almost to where you think every six steps they did that? Okay, I'm going to question that for you, right? Brian told me the verb is not where it would have been a repetitive situation. Um, they took six steps and they started basically by offering sacrifice. Why six? I don't know. Six days of work, seven days of rest, but that's how they started. It says that David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen epid, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David danced. If you want to read about that even more, 1 Chronicles 15 through 16, you can read about it. He didn't hold back anything in his own expression of worship. He didn't dance out of obligation, but out of heartfelt worship. I truly believe that. Let me ask you something. How free are you in worship? This also has been a journey for me. Can I tell you how long it took me to raise my hand? I'm not kidding you. I grew up in a church where if you raised your hand, they thought you had a question. Like it just, you just did not do that. Uh, you did not even clap. Matter of fact, the only response possible was out of the elders and they would say, amen. And if they did that loud, like you felt good. It was a good day, especially if you were the worship leader, you were singing or anything like that. And so I grew up without any expression in worship. But I've also told y'all I have been in environments now because God has to teach me through experience, I guess. And I have been in situations where now I've had to be hit on the forehead twice because I guess I couldn't go down the first time. So I have been in situations too where there's all kinds of emotion, right? One was stifled and in my situation... One was, uh, to be honest, uh, manipulated and forced. And I love the fact that we are free to express our worship. But let me show you something in this too. Um, oh, I love this uh, quote. It says, there are two great errors in this area. 
the error of making emotion the center of our Christian life, and the error of an emotionally detached Christian life. In the Christian life, emotions must not be manipulated, but they, most, they also don't need to be repressed. It says that he was wearing a linen epid. So I grew up hearing this story that literally, in my mind, David was a maniac by himself, following the ark, dancing half naked in front of everybody. How many people were taught that way? Okay. I'm going to challenge that, okay? Because it literally says that he was wearing a linen epid. And in 1 Chronicles 15, 27, it basically says that he was dressed like all the other priests and Levites in the procession. I do not believe David was dancing down uh, the, the street uh, in his undies dancing. Why? Because that was not the point. What he did was, is he basically took off his royalty. That's what he did. And he basically wore what all the others were wearing. And so he was humbly as a man, not as a king, but as a man legitimately worshiping the Lord in harmony with the other men. If you look at their tradition as well, I think they were probably dancing and moving in unison as well. And so you have this idea that in no way was this uh, production about David. He wasn't dressed royally so that all eyes would be on him, and he wasn't dressed scandalously either, right? Because the point is, uh, uh, we were talking the other day about the crown, right? Have you all seen the, the crown? There were ways that royalty were, so you're supposed to act, what you wear, how you act. I mean, she and the crown, she has a whole group of people that tell her how to be royal, right? This was Michael's problem, or Mikkel, as Professor Proverbs can say, all right? Um, is David did not hold on to image. He took off his image, and he was like everyone else. So let me ask you, are you uncomfortable raising your hand in worship? I challenge you to try it. If you grew up always jumping up and down and always having emotion, I challenge you to bow the knee and be quiet. I challenge you to do whatever your heart desires in worship. Because I'm going to tell you, there were times I wanted to raise my hands and I was disobedient because I was worried what it looked like or I was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to do that. And so I... I think it's awesome to have freedom, but I will also say this, the worship service is not about you. It is about the Lord. And so I have been in worship services where the flag was twirling in the front and I, I can't concentrate. I don't have all the answers to it, but I think this is a beautiful scene where there has to be a way where we can express our freedom in worship in harmony with one another, not drawing attention, but being free to do that. And so, I don't know, I think it's a beautiful picture of that. I don't believe this was a solo performance. Um, Brian sent me a text the other day that said this, have you ever heard a worship leader berating a congregation for not getting out of their comfort zone, being more exuberant in their worship by referencing to David's words, I will be more undignified than this. I don't think worship can be manipulated. And, I'm a, and my concern is when we do that, that's not about the worship. That's about the worship leader. I've been it, so I know. Because if I am trying to evaluate how good of a job I'm doing based on what I want to see you doing to manipulate that, I don't believe that's true worship. I think the job of a worship leader is to worship, period just to worship. And then that really brings you into the throne room to do so. So when someone tells me to sing like I mean it, to be honest, I'm so stubborn, I want to stop. Right? I was meaning it, you know? And so I think this is beautiful. And then we're going to close with this because Brian did it so awesome. But look at verse 16. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. 
and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, which that would have been a treat. Can I just say? And a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Oh, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. I can understand that now, can you? That's not how she's feeling. She is not feeling like leaping and dancing. I want you to think about her life. Brian talked to us about that. I don't think she was in a good spot. I think she was in a spot of grief because here now she has been taken, right? She's lost her father, whatever their relationship is. She lost her brother. She lost basically her position as princess in that kingdom. She lost David. And then she was given to someone else who y'all, the only way I can look at it is he was kind of crazy about her. Because when they went to get her to bring her back to David to have this political union so they could unite the nation together, he followed her and sobbed. That made me sad, right? Until Abner said, dude, back up. This is for the nation. Take one for the team. She's gone. Get over it, right? But now here she is back in this basically cold atmosphere where there is no love. And guess what she's supposed to do? Toe the line, baby. You are the, you are one of the queens. Look it. But yet she's got to toe the line. She's got to have the image. And yet she looks out the window and the king has taken off his royal image and is dancing just like everybody else. Oh, that's fair. You have the freedom to do that. You can rejoice because you get to make all decisions. You can choose who you want to spend the night with, whatever you want to do. Yeah, if I had that life, I'd be rejoicing too. And she despises him. And it says, and David returned to, oh, and by the way, I want you to see something that is so interesting. So here they have this sacrifice of thanksgiving. David is praising the Lord. He is. This is a big day. And then look what he does. Out of this blessing, he does what? He blesses. That's the way it's always been. God blesses us to bless others. And he blesses, and it says he distributed among all the people both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Y'all, I looked that up. It kind of made me laugh because I looked it up in the encyclopedia of the Bible. And listen to one portion of this. It says, although frequently thought to be a food with certain fertility powers, possibly an aphrodisiac. There is only one remote reference to it, maybe in the Song of Solomon's 2.5 or Hosea 3.1. So there's this slight idea that it could be uh, something you would give someone in Hosea to be fruitful, right? Isn't that interesting? Out of this worship and blessing of the heart and David is living in the, the love of God, the God coming back into the center of things and everybody's worshiping and out of that blessing, he is blessing. And in other words, he's handing out these raisin cakes going, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. How awesome is that? But look how ironic the end of the chapter is. Because in her grief and in her bitterness, instead, there was no fruit. She was what? She was barren. It says this, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, so David's coming in in a pretty good mood. And it says his intention is to bless. And she comes out and meets him in the driveway <laughs> and says, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Wow. Boy, you sure honored yourself today. You sure upheld the image of king today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Really? Okay, extreme. 
because he was dressed like all the other priests and Levites. What was the, her problem? The problem is he took off the royal image. And I'm here to tell you, the apple don't fall far from the tree. Because what environment did she grow up in? She was the daughter of Saul. And what did Saul value the most? Image, right? He even died on his own terms. He was willing to bow the knee to fall on a sword, but he was never willing to bow the knee before the Lord humbly and to take any kind of humiliation and repentance and to follow the Lord. It was about the image. It was about, and this is his daughter. And now David has been in a situation where he has removed that image, become one of, of the Levites and priests and is worshiping down. And she doesn't feel that in her heart, nor does she feel she has the freedom and she doesn't want to see it out of him. And I'm going to tell you what, she reigned on his party quick because she met him out there and she was going to stifle that mood. Let me tell you, have you ever done that? <laughs> have you ever gone out into the driveway? Don't you even come in here happy. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I, I'm so mad. I don't even know what you've done today, but I'm mad at you just by looking at you because I have dealt with your kids all day long. I don't know what you've done today that you're skipping in this house, but I, I'm sick of your kids. And you know what? I've done all the housework and I've paid all the bills. And I don't know why you have freedom to be joy when I don't feel like I have to do all this. And I don't know. I'm just making that stuff up. But that's, that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> and she and David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. Bam. Yeah. What do you think got your father in the mess he was in? Why do you think there's someone new on the throne? I'm not starting that. We're not. I don't care about my image. I'm going to humble myself before the Lord to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. I care more about what the Lord thinks than what you think. He, at that day, he had an audience of what? Of one. Don't you love that there are moments in him where you're like, gosh, David, you're so awesome. And then the next moment you're like, David, you're an idiot. <laughs> well, don't you ever look in the mirror like that? Like, Shan, you're so spiritual. You're so smart. You know that. Oh, yeah. Amen, brother. And then the next minute I'm looking in the mirror going, you are the worst. Like, you know better and you still, I mean, what's your excuse, right? I will make myself yet more contentable than this. And I will abase, I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Like, really? Let's don't even go there. Okay? And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Wow. I don't believe she objected to his dancing. I believe she objected to him removing the image. Um, I think it is so interesting what Brian brought to the table with that proverb. Because... If we would really live that way, would it have ended with, in one hand, the people walked out fruitful and Michael ended up barren? Like, if, if really David could have entered into her grief as well, and maybe she could have then experienced some of his joy to figure out how to do that. Um, it was really interesting. In my neighborhood group the other day, we were talking about the Trinity. And we were talking about whether you believe in it or not, isn't it beautiful to live that way? Because if Jesus really was God, what did he show us? What are some of the things he showed us about God? He showed us that God, which was shocking to the people of, their day, of, of the New Testament day, that God could suffer. That wasn't even a thought they would have had, that God could suffer. And that God could draw near right? The fact that, so if he can suffer and he can draw near and he, um, oh, what was the other one? Gosh, I can't remember. My brain's dying. But, but just think about, I can't remember what the other one was, probably love or, but if we could live that way, if we could with our husbands and our wives and our friends, if we could live in a way 
where we suffer with and we draw near to. And I'll think of the next one next week. I can't remember because I didn't plan this. But if we could live in that triune way with one another, um, what would life look like? If we could experience joy when you're experiencing joy, and if we could sit in grief and experience that, and there's no way we can do it perfectly because he's right in the sense that sometimes your joy is an offense to me, (laughs) you know, and vice versa. But to be able to do that, I just wonder, would that chapter have ended a little bit different? I think there's a lot of take-homes in this, um, this chapter. I think whatever your notes are written down, if, if you sat with them and meditated on them for a little bit this week, I think you could really go real personal in this chapter. I think you could evaluate. What do you think about God? Do you see Him as holy? Do you still have that reverence of God and really who he is? And then by thinking of that, consider what he did when he put on flesh to come and touch us, to have a relationship with us. Um, the fact that we could not get to him, so he came to us. I think we could, you could sit and ponder that for quite some time this week. I think you can ponder the fact of How often do you control things and instead of putting God on a litter per se up on his throne and having him lead the way and guide you that you actually plan the party and then you go get him in a cart and want him to bless it. I think you could sit there for, I could sit there for days. How much I try to control. Um, I think we can consider what our worship is and worship's not just singing. All right? It's not. It's how we live. And do we live authentically? Because we talked about singing. But do you live authentically when you're grieving? Are you grieving? Like, I don't mean just bawling down the street, but are you honest about it? Like, this is where I am. I'm grieving. I'm I'm trusting in God. And when people ask me how I'm doing, I always feel like if I say good, I'm lying. So I had to come up with something else. Hanging on for dear life. God is good. Um, he's got me, whatever. But I'm, I'm authentic in, in what I'm living out. And then when you're joyful, what? Be stinking joyful. It's awesome. And we understand where each other are. What is your worship like? Also, what is your worship like? Singing and that. You want to know why he worshiped so much? Listen, he had a situation with God that rocked him. And then what did he do? He went and pondered that situation in pain for three months. And I believe it is in that brokenness of the three months that he remembered a whole lot of stuff about God and he learned a whole lot of stuff about himself. And out of that tragedy and that pain, he came out of that doing what? Rejoicing. And so what, what I think if you prepare during the week and you meditate on the Word, you're going to have no problem walking into worship and being like authentic in what it is you are doing. And I think also, be careful with bitterness. It doesn't produce any fruit, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will bear much fruit. You want evidence of your spiritual life? It's not all the do's. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Do you exhibit that fruit? It's not a to-do list. It's a be list. This is what I am. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you that we get to come together and just imperfectly teach the Bible, to think about it, to question it, to meditate on it, to apply it. Lord, I thank you that we have a night. We really use the Bible. We work it. We use the tool you have given us to investigate and to understand you more and to really see in other human testimonies ourselves. Because sometimes, Lord, we can't see ourselves. We can't see our own patterns. We can't get away from ourselves long enough to see. But when we see it in someone else, we recognize it. Oh, man. And Lord, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. 
Because, Lord, if you were moving, I would never figure you out. You're constant. And I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you that when we don't understand and when we're confused and we don't get it right and we're mad and we're afraid of you and we just kind of leave you there for three months, I thank you that your blessing, your love draws us back. Because, Lord, to be honest, when I don't understand you, when I don't understand your hand and why you're doing stuff, there is something in me that knows deep down you do love me because that's what keeps me in it. It's what beckons me back. And I once again go pick up your throne and allow you to lead. Once again, when I mess it up, and I realize, oh man, I got the cart before the horse. And I'm always able to come back. You love me. I'm your kid. And the fact, Lord, that you sent your son to pay my debt so that I can run in and out of your house like a kid to talk to you blows my mind when you think about the fact that one touch of the holy thing makes you a drop dead. What? privilege we have. Lord, I pray that I would sit in your presence and enjoy it. Thank you, Lord, for this weather, this night. Thank you for Brian and Terry Glubish. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.